This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I, you're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Tsang with Subversity. Uh, today we're going to look back at the background um, in the situation leading to the crisis, the current crisis in Pakistan. And with us is an analyst uh, who has written about Pakistan, who worked as a journalist in Pakistan and is now a writer as well as a fiction writer, uh, Anis uh, Shivani. Uh, welcome. Thank welcome you, to the Dan. show. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think of the situation today? Did you, uh, when you left Pakistan, or did you, how many years ago was that? Well, when the you last left? time I was there yeah. was in uh, Benazir's second um, term as prime minister in the mid-90s, 94, 95. And I haven't been there, uh, been back since then. And, of course, her um, her second term ended in 97 when she was deposed by the president. And um, in 99, there was a coup that brought uh, Musharraf to power. Yeah, and uh, did you expect this kind of turmoil these days? Um, it's entirely expected... Um, Given the nature of Pakistani politics, uh, given the structural forces, there are some um, seminal issues that Pakistan has never resolved since its creation in 1947. Three leading ones, and um, each time these forces collide, you have a, a crisis like this, assassination, um, government by... Um, you know, dictatorship, which has been uh, more often the case than uh, any sort of democracy in that country. Do you, uh, do you have the radio on at all, or the? Is there some uh, feedback? No, no, no? I, I don't actually. Oh, it's just, just some noise, maybe. Yeah, uh, I think it's some noise outside. Yeah, outside. <laughs> yeah, horns. Uh, um, I think it's a leaf blower. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's fine. Sorry. Some local color. <laughs> yeah. The um. So, d- are you talking about the? Role of the military in the in the government in the in the running the country, others. Right. Yeah. There's three difficulties and and um, um, Benazir, you know, at, you know, at first what happened, you know, made me feel sad. I was horrified like anyone else, and she does have three, you know, teenage children, so I was feeling bad about that. But when you start putting it in context, I think she was very much part of the problem and not part of the solution. Um, the first issue that Pakistan has never come to terms with is what kind of state is it? Is it, an, is it an Islamic state or is it a secular state? Now, the country was formed according to what was called the two-nation theory, meaning that the Hindus should have their own you know, country, which is India, and the Muslims should have Pakistan. But as soon as the country was formed, the founder, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, he wanted more or less a secular state and religion to be the private affair of individuals. Um, as time has gone by, over the last 60 years, the state has become more and more Islamic. Uh, that's problem number one. Uh, problem number two, and, and this Islamic, um, uh, you know, um, ideology, if you will, creates tremendous problems in foreign policy. So this explains a lot about Pakistan's adventurism in Afghanistan, its hostility to India, and which brings us to the second problem, which is India. Pakistan defines itself 
sell the other to India. India doesn't need to do that to as much of an extent because it's a much larger country. But Pakistan is one-eighth the size of India. So in, if identity is conceived in negative terms, it is what India is not. And hostility to India has to be resolved if this turmoil is ever to end. And the third is, you know, when you put these two, two things together, if you look at the role of Islam, it is overt ideology, which is rare in modern states, and then you have the enmity to India, which shows up most um, blatantly in the fight over Kashmir, uh, that leads to the role of the military. And the military is the dominant institution uh, in Pakistan, and they only let civilian politicians uh, have a go at it for a short period of time before stepping in and, um, um, you know, running the country under their rule directly. So those are the three problems. And in, in this crisis with Benazir uh, and her assassination, you see all these three um, coming to the fore. And, you know, maybe we can talk more about what Benazir herself contributed, you know, in her first two terms uh, to actually, the you know, the, the um, fruition of this kind of crisis. Yeah, it seems like she is the handpicked person from U.S. Uh, when she came back, that U.S. had its hopes on her. And was she always playing the U.S. role uh, or this being favorite, favorite of U.S. when she was in power? Very much so. In fact, um, that is her whole um, um, game, or was her whole game. She is extremely good at was extremely good at playing the victim, you know, uh, going around in Western capitals, particularly Washington, uh, saying, well, look, I'm going to go back and I'm going to bring democracy back and I'm going to fight the dictators and you have to rely on me and I'll deliver to you what you want better than even the military guys can, which doesn't turn out to be the case necessarily. But this was very much her game in sort of in perpetual campaign mode. She was best when she was out of power and um, this actually comes from the fact that her father was hanged. Um, it was a judicial murder by uh, the country's worst military dictator, Zia ul-Haq, who ruled the country in the 80s under U.S. auspices. And mm. so her father was assassinated in, or, or, you know, hanged in 1979, and she was in exile. And that's where this whole tone of victimization and perpetual, um, um, how shall we say, um, you know, her, the, the Western countries somehow, or, or the Western media looks on her more favorably than I think the people of Pakistan ever did. So this time she was claiming to, you know, uh, go back and save the country. I'm the only person who can save the country. I'm going there to save my, my country. And that's just not true, you know. So the, the, the media actually uh, basically sided with that image, right? I mean, they promoted that image, the U.S. media. Kind of, Very much so, yeah. right. I mean, Chris Matthews, after she died, was comparing her to Martin Luther King and Gandhi. So, like, <laughs> you know, the next day, you know, it, all it takes is, uh, you know, this sort of thing, and you are instantly, you know, martyred, and uh, you become a legend, and there's no criticism, there's no evaluation or real understanding of what she was actually all about when she was in power. And I think her third term in power, if she, and she probably was an elected prime minister, would have been even worse than her first two because it's a it's a it's a, it's a downward progression as you know I think as as you can see. Why why do you say that? Well, in her first term, you know, I was one of those young people in college, very excited when in, this is uh, 1988, and soon after that, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. There was Tiananmen. There was this, 
you know, tremendous excitement about, you know, the third day of democracy. So we were all really excited, people of my age, that finally here's a secular female Muslim ruler, the first Muslim, you know, female Muslim ruler, who might actually change things for the better, uh, despite doubts about her feudal background. Because what you have to understand about Benazir is that she might have been educated at Harvard and Oxford, but she is predominantly, uh, has a feudal outlook, just like her father did. Uh, even though the contradiction is that she runs Pakistan's only uh, socialist party, this left-leaning party, Pakistan's People's Party, or PPP, and yet she's totally feudal in outlook. Um, what do you mean so feudal in, in outlook? Sorry, go ahead. What do you mean feudal in outlook? Feudal in, in, in Pakistan terms really does mean feudal. It's not a metaphor. It really means um, big landlords who dominate the assemblies, um, who are really the political powers far more than the merchants or industrialists or traders or the, certainly the middle class or the professional class, even though Pakistan does have a growing you know, professional and middle class, but it's the feudals who have always really made the big political decisions and have had the political power. And where this comes from is uh, British colonialism where they um, uh, worked they established these big landlords, particularly in the Punjab, Pakistan's biggest province, yeah. and gave them big lands and um, let them collect revenue and really be the agents of government and repress the peasants on the land. And this system was fundamentally not changed after the creation of Pakistan, unlike India, which, which did more substantial land reforms. Huh. So Benazir uh, is, was one of the largest landowners in Sindh, and that's for her father, despite his Berkeley and, you know, Oxford education, that's his mentality. They're very much, you know, feudal. So um, this one thing this shows in is, uh, you know, she left the party, uh, if we are to go by her, uh, the claims in her last will and testament to her 19-year-old son. So the party becomes a fiefdom. Literally, you know, her 19-year-old son who's just starting out at Oxford and her <laughs> totally corrupt husband, Asif Zardari. So um, there's no... And she was appointed... Uh, she appointed herself chairperson for life of the Pakistan People's Party. So those are some of the ways in which this feudal mentality shows. It's a dynasty. It's very much a dynasty. And um, the reaction in this country was... In the media in this country was uh, to... Uh, akin to something like um, some interruption in the Kennedy dynasty, you know, like when, when John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy, you know, John Jr. died in 19. Um, oh yeah. Was in 1999. It was so, sort of like that, you know. Camelot is gone, but but you have to look behind, you know, at the um, um, reality of the person. And dynasty politics is, is is no good. It's not as any good in Pakistan, you know. Just as, as, isn't good any good here. So they, so you are you faulting the mainstream media for not being critical enough? Right, definitely. Not only not being critical enough, but you hear over and over here, over and over again in this country, this idea that Musharraf was our best bet. We have no, we Americans have no real choices in Pakistan, and um, Benazir might have been a helpful transitional figure. And it's so bad that she's gone now because what do we do? We are a loss. And that's just not true. Um, and the, re the reason why we're saying that, that is because America has always preferred to work with 
military rulers in Pakistan, instead of dealing with the messy reality of democracy and working with democratic leaders as in India, we have just always preferred to have um, military rulers or severely compromised uh, democratically elected rulers like Benazir, who would really, uh, I think in this last go around, she had made it very clear you know, to Washington that she was going to do whatever they wanted her to do in the war on terror or any other thing. And so uh, America felt relatively comfortable with her going there. Although I think that um, the Bush administration would really just like, you know, for everything to go away, everyone to go away, and just work with Musharraf because he is their guy and he owes, he owes them everything. If, 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 the, if he is their guy, why didn't he protect uh, Budo then? Um, well, um, I think maybe he, he might have wanted to because the way there's a clear pattern to how um, these democratic, short-lived democracies unfold in Pakistan and then uh, when the military comes over, how their rule sort of subsides into a facade of democratic rule, and it's a very typical pattern. So in the 1950s, the country couldn't settle on, you know, having a constitution, and it was mostly the civil servants running the country. And that came to an end after a decade in 1958 when the first military uh, dictator, um, Ayub Khan, took over for 10 years in, 1960, in the 1960s. Uh, and that was a very benign military uh, dictatorship uh, compared to what came later in the 1980s with Zia. And that was the most brutal, harsh, and repressive uh, uh, regime Pakistan has ever known. And that came after almost a decade of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, Benazir's father, with the breakup of the country in 1971 and tremendous turmoil all through the 1970s with nationalization and misguided socialist policies. Zia was uh, uh, kept in, uh, was able to survive so long because of the um, um, Afghan invasion, of the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union in 1979, when Pakistan became uh, the front-line state to fight this proxy war against communism. Oh. The CIA and the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence agency, inter-services intelligence, work hand-in-hand to bring down the Soviet uh, puppet regime in Afghanistan. And so that was the second uh, military phase. And the third, of course, is after this turmoil of the 90s when Benazir and Nawaz Sharif took turns, you know, they were both prime ministers twice, and then Musharraf took over. But the point I was trying to get to is that each time the military ruler tries to legitimize his rule by... um, seeking uh, judicial authority for the illegal steps he has taken. He gradually establishes some sort of a parliament, you know, just as Musharraf, you know, is doing. He, he had a referendum in 2002, electing himself president for, five, for a five-year term, and now he's having parliamentary elections. Yeah. The yeah. problem is each time a, a military ruler does that, things tend to spin out of control, and that's exactly what's happened with this Benazir assassination. They can't control it. Yeah. Right. So what he, 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 he wanted, you know, I think he would have been okay for another five years with Benazir as prime minister. It wouldn't have been so bad, uh, hopefully, from his point of view. And yet, um, once you get that far, because Pakistan, has, is, Pakistan is not Egypt or um, Syria. It has never had this, uh, um, except for the Zia period, which is pretty bad, but that was because of him 
severe external crisis with the Afghan war, Afghan refugees pouring in, and America wanted a very harsh regime to be able to fight this war. But other than that, both Ayub and Musharraf have had a relatively benign order, and there's a strong civil society still in Pakistan. You know, even the perversions of the 1980s have not been able to stamp that out. There's like a strong NGO movement, women's movement, and um, intellectual life is relatively strong. So the dictator needs this, you know, this parliamentary facade and, you know, sort of this legal cover. Yet every time they do that, this happened also in the 1980s, in the, in the last years of Zia. It happened in the last years of Ayub. When you start doing that, things spin out of control and something unpredictable can happen, which apparently has with, you know, Benazir's assassination, and, and you lose control of this um, country, which after all is a very big country. So if Pakistan is a, like a client state of the U.S., how, how, did, uh, how, was able, how was some people able to sell military secrets uh, or nuclear secrets to other countries? The uh, U.S. just didn't know about it or what? Um, maybe they um, looked the other way, oh. but, or maybe they just, you know, they just didn't know. Maybe it was really, or maybe it's the kind of reality that sometimes we don't want to um, know the truth. You know, because it's in our interest to, for instance, the Saudis may be up to all sorts of nasty things that we don't want to know about. You yeah. know, we just yeah. don't want to, we are in denial because we believe that that's the only way to keep control of the oil resources is to have this, um, well, this is far worse than feudal. I don't know what to call that regime. Uh, and in Pakistan, we have decided we need the military, you know, uh, rulers. Uh, to keep our, you know, interests alive in that region of the world. So maybe we just, you know, weren't really interested in, in probing and, and getting to the, at the bottom of things, you know. Why, uh, why, was the, why is the U.S. so interested in Pakistan for strategic, re- for strategic reasons, for, uh, to fight so-called terrorists, or, or what, what, what's the reason? Well, it's... Pakistan likes to present him, itself as a major geostrategic player, and the reason in the um, the, the relationship really began, you know, at, at, at the outset of the Cold War, where Pakistan threw in its lot with the um, with the U.S. Uh, lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, it wanted to be a free market capitalist country. Not that yeah. that you know really worked out in practice. Whereas India was in the more or less in the Soviet camp. So all through the 50s, 60s and 60s, Pakistan was, was, used to be called the most allied ally because it presented itself as this bulwark against Soviet expansion. And this was exactly what Zia did in the 1980s when he said, look, you know, the Soviets want to get to the warm waters of the Persian Gulf, so why don't you make us the frontline state in this fight against communism? And that lasted through the 80s. Now, this, the U.S. has not always been interested in Pakistan because in, the, in 1990, when the Afghan war uh, finally wound up, the U.S. completely lost interest in Pakistan all through the 1990s. We couldn't care less during the Clinton years what was happening there. And we sanctioned them um, after the 1998 nuclear explosions. So there have been periods uh, when um, um, the U.S. has lost interest in Pakistan because it's no longer served this, you know, strategic function. But after September 11, once again, we saw that for the U.S., from the U.S.'s point of view, there's no way that the uh, war in Afghanistan could have been fought, the war in terror could have been begun uh, unless Musharraf had completely cooperated with the U.S. 
this war on terror would never even have begun. We would not have gone to Iraq because yeah. there wouldn't have been a war in Afghanistan, you know, to set the base for the war in Iraq. So yeah. uh, that's how Pakistan, you know, makes itself useful over and over again to get aid, uh, to help out its faltering economy, to get military assistance, you know, to keep the, to keep the military basically happy. So is the ISI, uh, does it work closely with the CIA then? Oh, absolutely. Even though there are times when it, again, it too gets out of hand. Right. Uh, and, you know, starts being more entrepreneurial than maybe the CIA would like it. But here, I wanted to get back to uh, Benazir, actually. In 1989, uh, really the most important thing she did in her first time in power was working through the ISI to... In, is to really restart the war in uh, in Kashmir, a jihad in Kashmir, if you will. Uh. And it's interesting that the ISI was found at the very beginning of the country, but it was Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. And again, it's, it's quite likely that, I, that the IS, ISI had some hand in, in Benazir's assassination. But it was Bhutto who really strengthened the ISI in 1974, gave it huge powers. It's like the FBI and CIA combined, and you know, he put it on steroids. They do both internal and external stuff and, you know, fight covert wars in Afghanistan, Kashmir, wherever they can get their hands in. And so she start, restarted this jihad in Kashmir in 1989, which has become really problematic because the real thing for Pakistan is to resolve this issue and give up its claim, you know, to the extent it can, it, that it can politically do so in, in Kashmir and normalize relations with, with uh, India. And the other thing that she did is that Benazir created the Taliban in 1994 when Afghanistan was in total chaos. And again, through the ISI yeah. uh, and the, the madrasas, the Taliban, really the word just means, you know, Talib or student. And these were students from Pakistani madrasas, which Benazir, through the ISI, was totally uh, pivotal in creating. Huh. So, um, yes, absolutely. You know, and, and, and um, in the 1990s, the... CIA and ISI were working hand-in-hand hand to um, support the Taliban. And the other regimes were, you know, that supported the Taliban were Saudi Arabia, no surprise, and a couple of the, uh, of the Daesh regimes. So, uh, yes, the ISI and CIA worked very much hand-in-glove on, you know, on these sorts of things. Is ISI part of the military? Well, it's a quasi... You know, it's, it's, it's really independent. It's, it's got... Um, you might say that, you know, people have called it a state within a state. It, it, it has become so powerful that, um, it, you know, sometimes it lives by its own rules. So, on the other hand, you know, when you, when you look at these, these, um, uh, these, this turmoil, you know, you might say, well, what is this, this lawless ISI? Who really runs it? Is it like independent jihadis? Is it um, uh, religiously inclined um, um, military leaders who really decide what happens in the in the it, it does have a director general of the ISI which you know the country's ruler appoints, but it's it's working very closely with the military obviously, and when the military tends to uh, be dominated more by uh, religiously inclined um, uh, you know generals, then the ISI is up to some of its you know nastiest business. 
Um, so, you know, you, you can look at all this turmoil and say, well, this, this just doesn't make any sense. There's the ISI, there's the madrasas, there's the religious parties. What is going on in Pakistan? Then there's the feudal to really run the country, even though there's, there's, there's this big and growing middle class. But if you look at it in sort of, you know, functional, structuralist terms, it seems that, you know, this kind of chaos pretty much does represent what the Pakistani polity is really like. In other words, um, if you just look at the fact that the military ruler never completely stamps out the civil society, you know, he allows some sort of freedom of expression to function, and this was certainly true during the Musharraf years. You know, we had pretty free uh, expression in the, in, the, in the media. And I think this sort of, you know, apparent chaos represents some underlying order and represents the, maybe the relative power of the different um, uh, different um, different segments of society. So what changed? Uh, what? Why did the U.S. go after the Taliban later? Um, actually, we weren't interested in doing that even after Bush came to power. We were talking about this pipeline, this oil pipeline. I think Unocal is the company that was interested in that. Even in uh, the summer of 2001 and in March of 2001 when the Taliban destroyed the, the Bamiyan, you know, the Buddha's uh, statues, yeah. uh, America did not take a stand on that. Right. So it was only September 11 that uh, it turned uh, the U.S. against the Taliban and Pakistan had to be the instrument to, to uh, displace the Taliban. So, you, so the U.S. also doesn't know whether they're still hiding people, right? I mean, at the at the border region or wherever, are they still, I mean, is ISI really at the bidding of the U.S.? Um, not entirely. They have their own agenda, and I think they, as soon as possible, they would like to go back to what they call, um, the reason why Pakistan has always been interested in Afghanistan and having its own puppet regime there or a very strong hand uh, there is because of this, you know, this this goes back to this Islamic ideological theory. It's an Islamic state. It needs what they call strategic depth. That's the term of art that they use there. Yeah. So it, it needs, you know, this expansion of its uh, sort of a soft border, which should extend into Afghanistan, have influence in the Central Asian republics. And Pakistan was, the ISI was really excited, the military was, in the 90s when the Soviet Union ended because they thought they could have a lot of influence in the... Uh, uh, Soviet Central Republics, which didn't turn out to be the case. They kind of failed at that project, but they re really were interested in that. So, um, to, you know, I, I think the CIA knows a, a whole lot about what's going on in Pakistan, where, you know, some of these um, insurgents, these, you know, leftover terrorists might be. But the ISI and the Pakistani military and the Pakistani government is by no means under um, complete control of the um, of the U.S., which I think was made clear when, when Musharraf last visited this country uh, in 2006. Well, I, I guess he also came in 2007, you know, for the U.N. meeting. But in 2006, when he was here promoting his book, you know, he started talking about, well, um, in, in, after September 11, um, we were told we were either with us or against us, uh, which is really what, you know, all fascist governments do. This is their typical thing. You're either with us or against us. It's black and white. Choose or we will basically destroy you. Mm. And he, he, so he had presented it in, in um, after September 11 as in being in Pakistan's best national interest to root out extremism and jihadis at home and work with the U.S. 
And in 2006, you saw a very different cynical mode from here and there. He said, well, we were told we would bomb you back to the Stone Age, so we didn't really have much of a choice. So he, he um, retrospectively uh, putting this relationship on a course of standing, if you will, sort of distancing himself to some extent at least, you know. So you, you can't say that um, much as, you know, Pakistani conspiracy theorists would like to believe that America decides everything that goes on in Pakistan, but it does have very, very strong influence. There's no doubt about that. But why do you say that the ISA uh, might have something to do with the uh, assassination of uh, Bhutto? Well, um, I that's something that's really hard to know. It depends on the nature of the deal that was worked out between uh, Benazir and Musharraf, how uh, keenly she was holding on to her end of the bargain, what America's expectations of her were, and was she you know, sticking to that part of the bargain. So it depends on um, the extent to which they thought uh, you know, she might become a really big problem. And again, um, something similar happened in in the nineteen in the late nineteen eighties when Zia, as as harsh a ruler as he was, he established his parliament in nineteen eighty five, and we then had in Pakistan from nineteen eighty five to eighty eight what was um, one of the country's probably one of the country's best rulers, Muhammad Khan Junejo, mm. and he. He was handpicked by Zia, who thought he was doing his, you know, his bidding. Yeah. But he had a mind of his own, and he was relatively democratic and um, more inclined toward peace than than war making. And so um, this whole thing ended. Zia was going to dismiss Junejo in 1988, but then he uh, died in a plane crash. Zia died in 1988, so that thing never came to a climax. But um, you never know. Once Benazir is in power. Uh, what might happen? She, what might happen? She does have um, a party which seems to have about you know 25% of the people's you know vote, so she has a strong independent base, and then she has a mind of her own, and where things spin out from there. So, Mushar's term might have been uh, short-lived, uh, and he might not have been able to serve out his whole uh, five years if Benazir had become prime minister. What so is? It's, yeah, it's really hard to know the, the motivations and what was really going on, you know, on the inside. And what element really was responsible for killing her? Uh, we're talking with Anis uh, Shivani, who's a, a freelance writer and uh, also a literary critic and also a novelist, actually, uh, based in Houston, uh, but used to write for the Pakistani newspaper Dawn in the 1990s. Uh, this is Savasti here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, this is Dan Zhang. Um, I wanted to ask you about the uh, also the um, the fact that uh, this might what what might happen. I mean, I, the question is what what do you think will happen with the if the military is still so much in control? Is are there any uh, is are there any challenges to the military rule? Oh, definitely. Um, and here's where Pakistan's you know, relatively vibrant civil society comes in. Um, again, you have a big and growing middle class. You have a professional class whose interests are not necessarily aligned with the feudal who operate through the military. So it's, it's really you know, ridiculous for uh, uh, this country's media and uh, the, the regime, you know, the administration in Washington to 
act as if our choices are really limited. What really needs to happen in Pakistan is for um, democracy to take place again. And we need to stop supporting uh, these military rulers as our only choice. Of course, it's easier for America to get its business done, whether it's in the war on terror or uh, it, whatever you know it, it, um, we want uh, that country to do. If there's a one-on-one uh, -on -one relationship with uh, a person like Musharraf, as opposed to dealing with the democratic system, but the problem is that after repeated perversions, each time you have military rulership, and now you've had three long episodes in all through the 60s, through the 80s. And now, you know, through the, you know, the uh, eight years of Musharraf, whenever you do that, you weaken civil society institutions, you weaken the judiciary, you weaken uh, freedom of expression, you make people more cynical about the government. And so it's going to be really difficult to get the country back on democratic footing. But it's only a democratic country, a, a democratic uh, leadership that can resolve Pakistan's long simmering issues with India over Kashmir normalize relations, and focus its attention not on military spending, but on social spending, on education, on, you know, uh, on, on alleviating the, the, the poverty in the country, and get the country back on track, very much like what India is doing. So the solution is very much there, but we need to step out of that situation and let, the, let events take its course, because there's no doubt that if Musharraf or any military ruler without America's support couldn't last long in power. Are you saying the? Are you talking about the lawyers also? Uh, the lawyers, did you say? Yeah. Uh, you mean uh, the, the legal profession uh, who have, uh, you know? Oh, the lawyers. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, what's the question about the lawyers? Uh, do you feel that they are they a challenge, or are they all being thrown in prison, or what? Oh, well, very much so. I mean, and again, this is also very typical of Pakistan, and this comes from the. Uh, uh, this is sort of a remnant of the, um, um, the struggle against British colonialism, where it was the, uh, the legal profession very much, you know, and, and Jinnah was a lawyer, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was a lawyer, right. and um, where the, the, the civil servants and, and the lawyers being uh, the most um, prominent among the, among the profession, professional class, uh, they're very steeped in uh, British legal traditions, even constitutional traditions, and this is one big plus that Pakistan has along with India, unlike, you know, perhaps some other developing countries who don't have this sort of a cultural, you know, heritage. It's a, it's a very important cultural um, legacy, this, this belief of the professional class, the lawyers certainly in this, you know, constitutional framework, the rule of law, and this comes from the era of British rule and the lawyers have often been in the forefront of fighting uh, military rulers. And freedom of expression, as I said, is, has always been very lively in Pakistan, except for some really bleak years. But certainly uh, during the 90s and, and in even the Musharraf years, you know, there is still a very lively debate. So if external elements step away and things are allowed to run their course, even these issues like uh, terrorism, sectarian violence, ethnic, ethnic nationalism, which is a huge issue for Pakistan. Uh, you have the dominant uh, Punjabis who typically run the military and often are, you know, uh, the rulers of the country, although not in the case of Musharraf or Benazir. Um, the ethnic issues will also be resolved much better with a um, 
democratic government. And here, let me just say one thing. Um, just before Musharraf, uh, before Nawaz Sharif in 1999 was uh, deposed in this coup by Musharraf, a couple of things were happening. One was uh, Nawaz Sharif had made a deal with Clinton to get Osama bin Laden. And here's an instance where the ISI was up to some good because we pretty much knew where Osama bin Laden, Laden was at that point. And we were going to go after him, and in exchange for some favors, we were going to deliver uh, him to America. And the other thing was it really looked like the uh, dispute with India over Kashmir was uh, going to be on the fast track. And, again, this is, I think, a thing that perhaps a democratic government can do much better, you know, these sorts of things than a military government can. You, you mentioned the legacy of the British. And, of course, one of the other legacies is the uh, Internal Security Acts, that mm-hmm. the British have uh, endowed uh, former uh, the then colonial uh, entities. Uh, you see that in uh, Malaysia now that they're using internal security acts to round up people. Right. And, uh, did they do that in Pakistan? Um, f- uh, in a in a big way, only in the Zia years, the early Zia years, and again, not in the later Zia years, because he had to soften up and you know accept the realities because. The feudal base is, is not the only base, and the, and the military, after a while, has to soften up and, and adopt a more benign posture. But they did that to some extent in the um, um, in the early 80s. Uh, you would also have to say that uh, the two Bhutto regimes, the 1970s, uh, with her father, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, he was pretty repressive with uh, in dealing with the Baluch. This is one of the smaller mm. uh, and least developed the least developed Pakistani province is Baluchistan, dealing with that insurgency. So Bhutto was pretty, you know, uh, um, adapted using those sorts of repressive rules, uh, you know, the internal security means that he had. And again, it was during his time and during the father Bhutto's time that these uh, internal security measures were really, you know, established for the first time in Pakistan. Um, The other thing is, in in the 90s, uh, Benazir to crush this ethnic insurgency in Karachi, the biggest city. Yeah. And it, uh, this was the MQM, or the Muhajir Qawmi Movement, or the, the, uh, representing the uh, Muhajirs, or the people who migrated from India in 1947. This is a, a, another mm. you know, uh, huge ethnic conflict in Pakistan, is that they want more, more rights uh, relative to the Sindhis, uh, relative to, to the uh, people of the province they, uh, you know, they uh, live in, in Sindh, yeah. um, and she used these measures in a big way. On the one hand, she established the Taliban, and her interior minister, uh, Nasirullah Babar, he was uh, uh, starting the Taliban, and this was the same person who really brutally crushed uh, the insurgency in, in Karachi. So you see these, you know, the preventive detention measures and uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, repressive measures to... Um, to control the uh, uh, the ethnic conflict. That's not the best way to deal with it, of course, but that's how she went about it. Uh, you're also a writer. Maybe we could use the last few minutes, uh, last 15 minutes of our talk here. Uh, and you've gone from nonfiction to now you're writing fiction. Uh, is that a difficult transition? Um, that's a great question. Um... um not really for me, although, you know, these days you see fewer and fewer people um, operating in multiple genres. You know, you see either just poets or fiction writers or nonfiction writers. 
and especially in um, uh, the dominant trend in this country with the MFA writing programs, what you see is people over-specializing, you know, they have their niches. You only do, and not only do you do just poetry, but you do poetry of a certain kind. You don't, if you're a poet, you're not even a critic of poetry, uh, let alone writing poetry of different kinds. You have this, you know, these niches, yeah. like you write confessional poetry or, you know, um, identity poetry or whatever it is. And the same thing goes with fiction. And if you're a journalist, you're a journalist, you don't get into um, fiction for the most part. And yet, if we, if we look at the past, you know, that's certainly not been the case. When you get away from this um, professionalization of writing under the MFA system, you typically had a man of letters, you know, these bell letterists where uh, certainly Hemingway, you know, was a journalist and fiction writer and activist, and that was true of Orwell. And, you know, you, um, or you had people moving from Hollywood even to serious literary fiction like Faulkner and, you know, yeah, and other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this was very much true in the past, and, you know, I follow the old model. I've never went to uh, school to learn writing, and I've just always been into, in this old, uh, following this old model, you know. And um, I, I see no, you know, boundaries between, between these genres, and it's not difficult at all because the same issues that I'm dealing with in, uh, or that I used to deal with in journalism, perhaps, you know, very early on when you're starting out, you, you, it's, it's difficult to write a novel, um, and, and so maybe journalism is the easier thing to do, but to bring the same issues to, to your fiction, which is what I've done. I, I find it a little problem because I, I, I was just kind of dabbling in, not in fiction, but uh, I went to a workshop, uh, a friend of mine who's a poet, and she offered a workshop once at, a, at an activist meeting. And I realized that when I was writing, I was still writing the who, what, where, and when in the right. journalism genre. But I wasn't paying much attention to people's reactions, what they looked like on their face, what was the context, what was the situation around them, who was looking at who, uh, right. you know, that kind of stuff. So I think maybe I don't have the eye for detail, I'm not sure, because usually I just go straight to the point and make my point. And uh, do, you, do you have an eye for detail then? Well, I see exactly what you're saying. And actually, you know, this is going back 10, 15 years, you know, and I was really worrying at one point, uh, well, if I write so much nonfiction or journalism, is it going to interfere with my fiction at some point? Because I did used to read writers, you know, who would say, well, you know, uh, I did so much journalism, I think that ruined my fiction and I became, let's say, too essayistic, you know, I think yeah. that's what they're getting at, or too journalistic, and that is definitely a real danger. And I would say that when I first made the transition, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I was making, in the middle of making this transition, my writing was too essayistic, and it didn't have this fictional flair, flavor of focusing on characters and emotions, and, you know, that sort of thing is what you're talking about, right? Right, right, that's as right. As opposed to stepping in as the uh, author, you know, telling you what's going on as opposed to letting the story tell itself. I see, and that's yeah. definitely a problem for anyone making that transition. But if you, if you keep at it, I think you can overcome it. The other thing is you see much more of this tendency in the 19th century authors, you know, the, the Thackerays and the Dickens and, and yeah, the yeah. Balzacs, who, again, used to operate in multiple genres, and there wasn't this fine dividing line between genres. Uh, and this goes back to the very beginning of fiction and before being the first fiction writer and a very important journalist. And he basically in, invented the modern English novel, right? And yeah. um, 
you see this tendency in him to to very great extent, where you see the journalist in him often taking over the novel, although not in his best work. So that that, that can definitely be a problem. We have a program actually at UCI called Literary Journalism, and uh, although sometimes I wonder whether people uh, are really uh, literature people or journalists because they they don't really have training <laughs> in, in journalism and right. i talked to a journalism professor at a, a different school and he said he teaches journalism and he said they don't even deal with literary journalism until the third year because they want right. to give people basic journalism training first right i i think you know this these boundaries need to be completely broken down and that's not going to happen because it's so professionalized and over specialized but oh, I see. if you look yeah. at the british or european model they're Fiction, I think, is, has more journalism in it, and their journalism has more literary, has much more of a literary, literary quality in it. And so, I think definitely journalism needs to become more literary, and then maybe more people would read it. And you see the newspapers losing readership, you know, uh, in the age of the internet. That's a huge problem, and maybe one of the big problems is that newspapers are so uninteresting to read. It's whether it's the New York Times or the Post or any leading newspaper. It, the, the prose is so bland. This goes for the news magazines, too, as opposed to um, letting pe- people have more of a you know, literary quality to... Tell uh, stories, you know, tells, like uh, obituaries. The British obituaries are much more interesting to read than the obituaries in regular newspapers here. Right, even the smallest items, you know, you even read their editorial, you know, their editorials and there's more of a literary flourish and uh, literary allusions. You see that they have, you know, they're aware of the great poetry and fiction of the ages and even the right. great journalists of the past like Orwell. And so they're sure. keeping that tradition and that needs to be brought to journalism here. Whereas, you know, in this country often you see this very uniform prose style which is really off-putting because, and I think it creates a certain cynicism in the reader because you feel like it's um, a, sort of a machine. It's an assembly line product as opposed to the expression, uh, to an expression of um, right. um, Individual. individuality. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're working on this novel called Intrusion. Uh, it's about an American anthropologist studying urban squatter settlement, uh, settlements in uh, contemporary Pakistan. Right. And uh, is this... Uh, Ugly American, or is the anthropologist a uh, well-meaning American, or what? What? I mean, or what? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, definitely a very well-meaning American. Although maybe those are the ones that might, you know, cause the greatest problems sometimes. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, Grand Greens, uh, quite American. American. Yeah, right? for sure. He was a CIA guy. <laughs> right. But very well-meaning, right? Right, he's, for he's sure. Really well-meaning. He's not cynical in that sense, in that overt sense. No, but this is, um, um, I find anthropology really interesting, you know, um, this yeah. idea of ethnologies. And I think this is, you have to look at it in the, in the context of the last hundred years of sort of a branch of imperial uh, governance, this intellectual offshoot of empire. Uh, this is one of the ways we, we, we legitimate empire by classifying and categorizing people and putting them on this linear track, like, you know, this is the way development has to be. Um, and certainly that's been very much the case, you know, with Pakistan where um, aid agencies and um, uh, 
uh, World Bank, IMF, that sort of thing, not to mention social scientists during the Cold War era, were yeah. very interested in seeing the country develop along certain lines. And if it didn't fit the pattern, that was a huge problem for Cold War era social scientists, you know, including anthropologists, which is not to say that there haven't been, you know, great, you know, um, anthropologists who have looked at Pakistan. I'm not saying that. Right. But, in, but in general terms, you know, this whole idea of approaching uh, cultures from this um, presumed neutral stance is what fascinates me. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this um, anthropologist who is uh, supposed to have this neutral objective knowledge and yet is perhaps, you know, the most clueless, clueless person around, maybe more clueless about certain important things than the uh, subjects that she's, um, that she's studying. And you see typically, you know, anthropologists, you, you have this image of them studying only, you know, so-called primitive peoples or tribal people or, you know, whatever. But here I've displaced it to an urban situation. So Do they, it sort of turns the situation, you know, the, the roles on its head. And um, you see maybe how irre irrelevant, you know, to some extent the anthropologist might be in, in a situation like that. Does she treat the urban settlers as the other? Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? Does she treat them as the other, the, uh, the people she studies? The uh, she tries not to. That's the whole objective, right? And certainly, yeah. you know, uh, in, in this politically correct age, you know, anthropologists are not supposed to function that way. Right. And there's, you know, they're trying to overcome this, you know, this otherness and this feeling of the other. Um, Does she go, na she goes native? <laughs> so called. She goes native. Uh, actually, she doesn't. And that's oh. also maybe uh, a deviance. And some might say, well, this is unrealistic of me to do that in this novel because they uh, often do try to go native. Right. And live among the people and adopt their customs for an extended period of time, learn the language and so on, to get the picture from the inside. But in this case, uh, she doesn't. You don't always have to, and, you know, and she chooses not to. So that also complicates the picture because she feels that um, maybe by remaining objective and, and, and being at a distance, she can get a closer read on how these people are really living life. What is the nature of their hope, their optimism? How can they continue to survive under these, you know, against these tremendous odds and such poverty? Um, and she thinks that by staying at a little bit of a distance, she can get a better, better grip on things. And, you know, this kind of gets us back to the journalism because uh, this is maybe the problem with journalism in this country is that, you know, this idea of, the, of presumed neutrality, you're not supposed to have a point of view. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, and, you know, of course you have to have a point of view, you know, right, we know right. that, certainly. So, um, and the papers, the owners have a point of view, <laughs> the, the corporations that own the media have a point of view. Well, they certainly do. Fox News has a point of view, right? Just right, like, for sure. You know, CNN does. CNN does, like, yeah. You know, and it, and it changes over time and it's, it's very closely correlated to political events and what, the, you know, what function the media is supposed to serve to sort of balance different factions at different points in time, so definitely. But, you know, this sort of um, gets us to the bigger issue of um, the relevance of social science, which I think is a huge problem, you know, in, in the 21st century when we have these major issues that cut across cultures and na nation-state lines with, uh, you know, ecological problems, global warming, and, 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 and other issues, you know, this unfulfilled promise of... Um, uh, independence, you know, uh, after the end of colonialism, and these are the sorts of issues, and, and this is, you know, why you see this 
situation in Pakistan is so interesting because here's where all these forces, you know, these these are just clashing, religion versus secularism, tradition versus modernity, industrialization, you know, the, the uh, 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 you know, democracy versus a dictatorship. All these are, uh, you know, coming into conflict. And social science is more and more irrelevant to these really big issues of the future. Because I think in many ways, the social science paradigms, anthropology being one of them, but certainly I would include, you know, economics, you know, as well, and sociology and others, unable to confront these, these huge, huge issues of the future, yeah. which, which don't fit neatly into social science paradigms. And certainly not when social science is discreet and, um, you know, doesn't talk across disciplines. You have this anthropologist, they're doing their business there, and yet if you have the IMF and the World Bank and the you know, economic um, masters really uh, deciding, you know, the, the key issues, what can the anthropologist do except be, you know, a keen observer at best? Yeah, because I was thinking that one of the uh, other times we things we could uh, do is maybe talk about the role of NGOs also and, and how that develops with, uh, I know that a lot of NGOs are very well uh, the foreign-based NEOs that have branches in Pakistan, for instance, the the people that place from abroad are very well paid versus the local uh, hires. And sometimes there's a conflict between, you know, they live lavish lifestyles maybe, uh, even if they're NGO, because uh, they're funded by some, you know, Western uh, NGO that uh, that may actually give uh, the the leaders very a lot of money. But uh, locally, they may not be, uh, you know, that well right, supported. Right, right, that, that's, that's really interesting because, you know, there's, I, I have scenes in my novel where this anthropologist, she's actually working at this NGO headquarters because, and this is based on a real case study. Uh, this is uh, Akhtar Hamid Khan. He's one of Pakistan's, you know, uh, greatest uh, activists, and he did start this urban um, settlement where people are supposed to take initiative, and this is um, a so-called, you know, squatter settlement. But it is uh, very progressive in many ways, and it is based on, you know, um, self on the self-help principle. And um, to the extent that he can, you know, it, it was it's actually a quite successful experiment. Uh, it's called the RMD Pilot Project. So, you know. So, so I'm talking about this, this is essentially an NGO, except local, you know, as yeah. opposed to a foreign, you know, in provenance. And so this anthropologist also, you know, involved in interactions with the people at the NGO, uh, and there are different kinds of people there. There are the foreigners, there's, you know, the Americans and the Europeans, and then there's the local people, and, and the, the cultural conflicts that occur between them, and that's very much a part of her um, continuing education as, you know, She's there in Pakistan, so that's that's a that's a great great you know uh, um, stop that you raise, and it's you know these sorts of um, differences in training um, very much show up in the in in, you know, in running the NGOs, and again the whole idea of the NGOs, you know, they have to take such a prominent role because if when you don't have democratic governance over a um, a sustained period of time, then it's the NGOs that have to take up the slack. And I, I think, you know, many people are all for that. I kind of look at it a little skeptically because I think that they are picking up functions that really properly belong to government and not to, um, you know. Yeah, um, and I've, I've had on my show uh, Joanna Ho from Taiwan who has been critical of the 
kind of fundamentalists uh, bent in church-related NGOs that uh-huh. are dictating uh, sexual policy in uh, Taiwan. The right. NGOs are very active, but from a conservative bent, actually. Right. Right. That's that's very important in Pakistan too, and in other you know South Asian countries too. Is that when you when you legitimize uh, uh, legitimize the NGO movement, uh, we tend to think of NGOs only as progressive, liberal, Western-oriented, moderate, you know, right. poor women's rights, and that's often the, that is often the case, environmentally motivated, that is often the case in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and other places, but what's to prevent then the NGOs from, you know, uh, from fundamentalist NGOs from, from rising, and that has really, I think, exploded in Pakistan. And if you look at the Madrasa movement, you know, what are they but the ultimate NGO, providing people... Um, um, social services, you know, in, in, after the earthquake in Pakistan, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a couple of years ago, um, some of the most radical uh, jihadi groups, extremist groups, were the ones most active in providing relief. And this is how they gained legitimacy, and people were right. very, you know, the secular NGOs were upset because they thought, wow, these people are taking up the slack, but they have the manpower, the resources to actually step in in a big way, but that's government function, and yet, when you've uh, given them this sort of... Um, There's no uh, accountability, right? Yeah, if it's... Legitimation, right. Yeah. Then you can have these fundamentalist NGOs as well. Yeah. So yeah. that's very much a problem, and that's why you need an, uh, an, uh, you know, yep. a government that's operating by the rule of law and is not you know, um, allowing space, whether through NGOs or through any other means, for these... Um, fundamentalist or anti-modernity, you know, factions to uh, get any hold, any share of the power. Right, yeah, we're actually out of time. Uh, thank you, okay. uh, Shiv- uh, Anish Shivani, and uh, the person I mentioned was Josephine Ho, not uh, Joanna Ho, from okay. uh, Taiwan. <laughs> uh, okay. Thank you very much. I'll have to have you back when your novel comes out, or even before that. Okay, thank okay. you. Great, thank Bye-bye. you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, that was uh, Anish Shivani talking about Pakistan, uh, whether or not uh, Bhutto was the savior of Pakistan. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of Regents of the University of California, nor the management of KCI.